0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO Sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO Sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO FOMO Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And you know, we were talking about entrepreneurial renegades this season, I got you a very, very good example of that. My guest today founded his company eight years ago. In fact, the other night, I went to the eight-year celebration of this company, And he has built a business that is very unique. He does not follow the crowd. He does things his own way. And he's just a really thoughtful, thoughtful person. That's why I wanted to have him on the show because he's so smart. But also, he's building something that just, it's just different. And I think that listening to entrepreneurs who have a completely different vision, that aren't playing the venture capital game, that are building something completely distinct, very interesting. Now, his name is Francis Pedraza, and he's the founder and CEO of a company called Invisible. And Invisible is a company that offers ops as a service. Now, basically, What they do is combine outsourcing and automation into one easy-to-use, end-to-end solution. Now, I know this sounds complicated, but don't worry. Francis will explain it in a way that makes sense to all of us later in the conversation. Now, he started this company back in 2015 with the idea of giving people a way to spend more time focusing on the work that matters so they can reach their full potential. And prior to this, he actually had another company. It was called Everest, an app he founded to help people achieve their personal goals. You see a theme here. He studied history, philosophy, and economics at Cornell and Oxford, and one thing I love about Francis is he's just the kind of guy that will start like quoting Cicero while you're grabbing a coffee with him and bring up Descartes over dinner, so he is really interesting because he's a philosopher, not just an entrepreneur, and he's just an interesting guy, and that's, I think, why he's been featured in an article that I thought was really incredible in New York magazine. It's called what if you could outsource your to-do list. And I read this shortly after meeting Francis the first time. And I was like, I got to get this guy on FOMO sapiens. And here he is today. Now in our conversation, you're going to learn a couple of different things that I think are really special. Number one, you're going to learn about how he is building his company very differently. It's not about raising more and more money. It's about getting rid of the investors to make his employees partners in the company. We are also going to go down a couple rabbit holes, but they're nice rabbit holes. And I don't know what that means. But, you know, the thing is, as I mentioned, Francis has read a ton of philosophy. And so we're going to get into the existential meaning of FOMO from the perspective of a philosopher and an entrepreneur. We're also going to talk about what Francis learned from his first startup, which didn't go well. And how it has shaped how he's been building Invisible. Because he raised a bunch of money from some very fancy people. It didn't succeed. And so it really kind of defined for him how he wanted to build a business in the future. Now, a small ask for you this week. If you haven't done it, please consider reviewing the podcast. We are growing the number of reviews. It's getting up there. But I still need more because when you have more reviews, it's easier for people to find the show. People take you a little bit more seriously than if you have like seven reviews. So if you don't mind, and more importantly, I read the reviews and learn from them. So it's good feedback for me. I'd be so appreciative. Just go to your your app that you listen to the show on and review. Obviously, if you hate the show, don't give me one star because if you hate the show, go listen to something you like better. I don't want to be in your ear if you're not enjoying it. But if you like the show, it would mean so much to me. All right, now onto the interview. As you know, I like to start every conversation the same way. Of course, for Francis, I made no exception. And the question is this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today?
1: Not to raise a Series A and to commit the company to profitability. Um, We were about four, almost five years into the company. Um, The team was tired. Uh, We'd gotten to a one mil run rate. Um, Then we had sort of hit a plateau for about six months after raising money. And the the default strategy was raise a big Series A from a, a well-known VC. And everyone was excited about that because everyone's expectations for bigger salaries, um, lower risk, um, are tied to this kind of... Um, you know, series A Messiah, like have the series A come rescue us, right? It's almost like a bailout every every fundraising rounds like a bailout. And there's this assumption that all the problems will just go away. Um, somebody else is gonna, you know, come in and, um, you know, help you solve them. Uh, it's like kind of like the reinforcements arrive arising. And I told the team reinforcements are not coming, we're gonna have to solve all the problems on our own. And we're gonna have to get the company to profitability. And we changed our salaries and tie them to the bottom line. So we got paid more as the bottom line increased. And we just changed the culture. We became every single person at the company um, got financial statements at the end of every month. And we would walk through the income statement line by line and look at where the costs were and figure out how we could get more efficient. Um, every single person in the company would look at the sales funnel and think about how we could you know, grow more clients. Everyone would look at the, look at the clients we had and think about how we could do more work for them. And um, it took us... A little over a year uh, to get to profitability, and then we had a huge party. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was last summer. But then uh, since then, it's been over a year since then. You know, we we got to profitability at roughly a nine mil run rate. We're um, uh, about almost an eighteen mil run rate now. Um, and so at the you know uh, one year anniversary, will be over two x growth in that year. And we've now come up with a completely. Contrarian uh, corporate strategy, uh, whereas in- instead of you know raising more and more money, uh, we actually um, are using profits and debt to buy back our equity. We're buying back all of our investors, and our corporate strategy is actually to become a hundred percent. Partner-owned company. We call our employees partners. Um, if you go to the hiring page of our website, we say no employees allowed. Um, we have built a completely different, you know, company culture all around uh, extreme ownership, um, not just in financial terms, but in in terms of the your behaviors. You know, we talk about the way an employee will operate in a certain situation versus the way an owner will operate. Um, and employees will like follow the rules and do their quote-unquote job, whereas the owner will think about the overall strategic picture and the goal and will focus on a problem and they will keep going until all the problems are solved
0: there's so much in there that we're going to get into today but i just want to mm. i want to mention a couple of things just call them out because i think in the history of this show i cannot think of many examples. we've had companies that were bootstrapped okay great that is by the way mad respect we have not to my knowledge had a company that you know, raise some money and then said, actually, we want to buy back the shares. We want to make our employees partners in the business. We want to have radical transparency, accountability, Mm -hmm. self-reliance. I mean, this is just not the stuff that you see because what our culture and our entrepreneurial culture glorifies is the TechCrunch article that says, you know, guess what? We just raised $10 million from, you know, very high class VCs. What you don't see in the fine print, of course, is that we just sold, 30% 30% of the company and if the company's worth 10 billion dollars one day well that's you know 3 billion dollars of value to that investor right so have i done the math mm-hmm. right there um, but, mm-hmm. but that yeah. that's exactly the kind of stuff that a lot of people don't do so you're taking a really different path and as i think about what you've just said and we're going to get into these i just threw the entire plan for the interview out the window because you just that's great i know I'm right? excited. we're going free form today everybody FOMO. quick math The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. Francis, so how how would you describe what your company, Invisible, does?
1: Invisible is ops as a service. You can delegate any business process, any repetitive work on a Zoom call. Just show it to our team or delegate it in our app and we combine outsourcing and automation to do it. So we have a thousand workers on our digital assembly line doing all the steps that we can't automate, and we're always trying to figure out how to automate more steps. And it works for every industry, everything from insurance to helping, um, you know, food delivery companies digitize restaurant menus, to helping customer support teams do tickets, to helping data science teams build data sets. I mean, you can use it for anything.
0: There's an implicit thing, and you are, you know, of the people that I know in the world. You are a man who has read the great books. You are. You talk about dinner parties, pre-Cartesian and post-Cartesian thought, which is something that <laughs> I did, ran a Google because I was like, need to figure this one out. And and as I think about the philosophy of this, what I'm seeing is there's patience, and there is a long-term plan, and there is a a, uh, let's say, a a healthy relationship with FOMO, where you're not just looking at the market and saying, I have to raise the big round because everybody else is doing it. So as a philosopher, I want to (laughs) hear, unpack FOMO from your perspective and how this fits into the picture.
1: Yeah. So I'll try to bridge the, the two, you know, that, that, that whole business narrative I gave you mm-hmm, and FOMO mm-hmm. as the philosophical concept and FOMO as an economic concept. Cause I, I view FOMO very flexibly. It's a very, very rich concept. If you did a mind map of FOMO, it would be an amazing mind map. Um, so I'll start with our corporate strategy that I just mentioned thinking, let's think through it through from first principles. If we raised the series a that we wanted to raise, we would have raised $10 million at a hundred million dollar valuation. And think about how excited we would be, right? We would, you know, maybe there'd be a Wall Street Journal article. I'd send it to my parents. I'd say, look, mom, look, dad, we're successful. Somebody decided to buy 10% of our company for a $100 million price. Now, my parents are pretty financially savvy, but like, even though they're, you know, most people would just say, great. But actually what they should say is, no, we should go, this is a funeral. This is a disaster. This is terrible. Because if your, your company becomes worth $10 billion, that 10 million that you just raised is going to cost you a billion dollars. And because it's equity, it, it won't be paid off uh, when you, when you get to 10 billion and it's worth a billion, they still own 10%. So if you take that $10 billion company and make it worth a hundred billion dollars, that billion dollars turns into $10 billion. People don't understand how equity, how precious equity work is, how, how insanely, you know, um, exponential it is. Um, If instead I had raised the $10 million as high yield debt, that 2.5 X's in five years, that sounds really expensive, right? Well, I would have reduced my cost of capital by 40 X. The 10 million would have turned into 25 million in that scenario. Whereas in the other scenario, the 10 million turns into a billion. And, um, and so, uh, that's an example of, um, you know, resisting FOMO, like, uh, the herd mentality is everyone's raising a series a, I'm going to raise a series a, it actually becomes more of a status game and, or more of just a, you know, a game. Like the game has been set up and like, I want to be the best. I want to raise the biggest round at the most money. And nobody's actually questioning the game itself, like, and, and, and actually The real money is when you decide to start playing a completely different game um, and even invent your own game. And that's what we've done. Um, So we got to profitability and kind of like, uh, you know, I I still had board control two to one. So kind of like a creepy haunted house. Uh, I said, look, equity turns into money in five ways. Uh, Either dividends, which is the main way. Um, uh, Historically, that's what companies are for, creating dividends. Um, Secondaries. Uh, where another outside investor buys an inside investor stock. Um, uh, An IPO, uh, you go public uh, and then anyone can buy your stock. Uh, uh, M&A, you sell your company to another company. Or buybacks, the company buys back shares from you as a shareholder. Those are the only five ways that equity turns into money. I just closed all the doors in the haunted house one at a time. (laughs) Not planning on doing a dividend. Um, uh, Not planning on facilitating a secondary not planning on going public, not planning on selling the company. If you want your stock, you know, your stock's worth a lot of money. uh, If you want to sell it, you're going to sell it back to the company. And then obviously the question was, well, how are you going to pay for that? Um, And the interesting thing about that is no matter how many profits, how much profit you generate, um, uh, you actually can never have enough profit to, in most situations, to uh, buy back at reasonable multiples, because the more profit you generate, the more valuable a company is. So it's sort of like a, a sort of weird paradox. So uh, I I went to banks and, the, you know, to try to uh, convince them to lend me money, and they wouldn't do it because they had never heard of anything like this. Um, it's just not sort of not a done thing. But I read this book that one of our advisors gave me um, called Outsiders by William Thorndike. And it walked through eight different case studies, uh, 20th century, more private equity companies like Berkshire Hathaway, um, uh, Washington Post, for example, they did a lot of buybacks Um, that were none of them were tech companies, but they all had done this strategy very, very successfully. And, you know, uh, it made sense to me for a lot of reasons. Um, and so I, I ended up finding Mike and Barry, um, at, uh, level, level, uh, equity, uh, and level equity had a structured capital group, like basically a debt fund. And they were, they were some of those rare first principles, thinkers, contrarians that can do a deal on the back of a napkin. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, Hey, you know, would you do this deal? And they're like, yeah, we do that deal. We'll, we'll give you the debt you need to buy those investors back. And then it just, you know, it worked. So going back to like FOMO as a sort of um, uh, economic concept, um, you know, I, my mind immediately goes in two, two directions there. One, you know, generating beta versus generating alpha. Um, so beta is consensus. Uh, if you do what everybody else does, more or less, and you're just trying to compete with everybody else to play that, the game that everyone else is playing better, um, you're going to generate average results or above average results. You're never going to generate insane results. The only way to generate insane results is, uh, which is in financial terms called alpha, um, is to um, to do something very deeply contrarian. And and so then, well, you know, where everyone's doing X and you're doing not X, you're doing Y. And the only way to arrive at ideas like that is by thinking for yourself. And whenever everyone is saying X, you're thinking what are the ways in which they might be wrong. Um, so, for example, when everyone's selling, think about how to buy. Um, right now it's a recession. A lot of our investors are selling, we're buying. Um, so that's a a classic example. Um, and the second, you know, sort of FOMO as an economic concept thing that I think about is just generating optionality. And this actually, this is a good bridge into sort of thinking about FOMO for life philosophy, because you can generate optionality in your personal life. Uh, but you can also generate optionality in business. Um, and the more options you have, the more likely you are to arrive at a better decision. Um, the best investors I know um, invest in one company for every thousand they see and that's not just a made-up number like they've walked me through the numbers they really invested only one out of every thousand and um, but the only way you can do that is to have a really high fomo discipline um, where you're actually comfortable letting a lot of options come and go come and go come and go and you're not only comfortable having that happen you are actually actively generating, you're building a platform to generate FOMO, um, to generate options, but you have the ability to wait for the one that's like truly incredible and to recognize its value.
0: Everything you said is wrong. No, I'm kidding. I I think think that's right. And, And I think, you know, you look at the best VC funds and they put out their stats around pipeline and they all, they are FOMO generators, right? Because they're, you know, we've just talked about how the model works. The model is, hey, I get the right brands, to invest in my company, I get the Sequoias and the Ber- uh, not the Berkshire. They don't do this kind of stuff. But you know the the Draper Fisher and all of these sort of names. And all of a sudden, I'm sort of I am sort of a maid. And by the way, that's not true. These they have plenty mm-hmm. of failures in their portfolios. They mm-hmm. do have better access, but they part of that is mm-hmm. because they created a pipeline where they get as much deal flow as they can handle. And then they mm-hmm. go through and they pick. And you know the model is such that you know a lot of this mm-hmm. is timing as well. But they will have the ability to choose the best of that bunch. And then the rest, the ones they say no to, go in what I call the FOMO folio, which is like, pretty interesting company, but we're not going to do this deal. And so that makes a lot of sense to me, I think, with the major caveat that you are able to not be an optimizer, right? Because you know the flip side of FOMO, of course, of course, is Fobo, and it's that you have so many options that you're overwhelmed and can never choose any. And so you gotta have the the rigor and the processes to make a decision. Mm-hmm. But but I would generally agree with you that that is um, absolutely the way to play it. And what I find so interesting about the way you've done things is, you know, you're 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 contrarian. But also, I guess, what the trade-off you're making, and maybe you won't agree with me, but uh, this is the way I kind of think about it, is if you raise a gazillion dollars, you could could grow faster. Mm -hmm. However, the trade you're making is to say, I'm going to grow a little slower. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to drive the car on the highway at 70. I'm not going to go 130. My chances of getting there all in one piece are much higher, and I'm going to own the whole car. I don't have to go out and, you know, Get a bunch of people to finance the car for me. So you're trading off sort of the certainty of success and the ability to own more of that success against moving way faster, but also the chance that you know even if you get there, you don't own it and, and you might crash along the way. Is that a fair way of of laying out your philosophy?
1: Well, so so you you raised a lot that my mind's going in different directions. May I free associate?
0: Yes, go ahead.
1: Thank you. Okay. To the question of whether if we raised more, we could grow faster. I thought about that a lot. Um, Like, is it actually true that we're growing less fast than we otherwise would? Um, And then I started to think, well, what are the constraints on my growth? And I started to realize that in different businesses, there are different constraints. Um, And in our business, our constraints are actually not capital constraints. They're operating constraints. Um, And I'll give you an example. Uh, So we ended last year with roughly like, 40 partners at the company. Uh, And by the end of this year, we'll have um, maybe 70 partners at the company, almost double. If you poured a bunch of capital into Invisible and just said, grow faster, like maybe we could have gotten to 90 or 100 or 110 partners at the company. We could have grown headcount. But that's sort of thinking thinking inside of a spreadsheet instead of thinking inside of real life, right? Because obviously, uh, we all know that... uh, you know, there's human, there's such a thing as like culture and human dynamics. Um, and so when you double a company in a year, maybe the veterans can uh, absorb the newbies, right? Can like make them part of the culture and, and, and um, and teach them all that they know and, and impart the history and impart the values. If you triple a company in one year, it's a different, it's a new company, brand new company uh, and probably a chaotic company with like some, you know, wild, you know, culture where the incentive is to just like. I mean, what is the incentive, right? Uh, like, you have to think about what the incentives are. So, in in our company, the incentive is to like grow the value of the equity. In a scale up, where seventy percent of the company is owned by investors, are people really thinking about the IPO? Um, like, what exactly are people thinking about, right? Um, and so, in theory, you can grow faster in some com- in some specific business models and some specific strategies. Capital is the constraint right? Like you can't build SpaceX without spending a ton of money on a lot of expensive equipment. So you design the company in a different way. And so this is where, you know, first principles thinking versus sort of uh, FOMO herd following is very important. Um, You know, you've got to have good FOMO discipline here. Um, Because on the one hand, um, you have bootstrap companies, like you said, uh, where you raise no capital. Um, and and then on the other hand, you've got these massively loss-making venture companies. Uh, let's say SpaceX is a good example of that. In between, are those the only two options? You know, it's a very, it's like a false binary. So questioning the binary, there's a third type of company, which is a capital-efficient company that'll take less than 10 years and less than $10 million to get to profitability. But it is still extremely viable uh, as a, uh, defensible, scalable, and profitable monopoly. Um, and so those are opportunities where, you know, you do need to raise money in order to execute on it. But at some point, it's not really about the capital constraint. It's about the operating constraints. Um, just one other example of operating constraints is versus capital constraints is hiring salespeople. So the question is, what are you going to spend the money on? Well, if you're spending money on salespeople, I'll tell you that the payback period for our salespeople right now is about six months. So it actually is is just working capital, right? Because you keep recycling the dollars. So it's you you like literally can't invest ten million dollars on salespeople because in six months you get the ten million you know back. And 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 actually you know the amount of operational complexity of actually hiring you know ten million dollars of salespeople is just not, that's thinking in a spreadsheet versus thinking in real life. In reality, like you hire a million dollars on you know, spend a million dollars more on salespeople, and six months later you get the million back. So you just there's a limit to how much capital you can put in to hiring salespeople because it's really about the, uh, the operating constraints
0: FOMO, FOMO. This is where venture capital messes up companies because people raise the round and then the directive is like, you have to grow fast. And so they start investing in things where the ROI just isn't there. But if they don't deploy the capital, and you've seen it a million times a VC show up at the board meeting, like, why aren't you growing fast enough? Well, you got to hire more people. And all of a sudden, you have this structure that you put together overnight without being thoughtful about it because you're so afraid of making your investors angry. And by the way, they've just told you, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to invest 20 million in, you know, in three months or six months or a year, whatever the timeline is. And then all of a sudden, you sell more and more of your company to external People and you are no longer in control of your destiny. Now, you, Francis, in building this company, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to come back to it. It is like this self-reliant, this self-reliability, this does, you know, you're choosing your own destiny alongside your partners. And I have to wonder if, you know, this is not your first time building a startup. You built a company before called Everest that ultimately failed. You had raised mm-hmm. money from some amazing people and it just didn't go the way you wanted it to go. Do you think that the fact that you are, you know, very focused on this different way of doing things has to do with what you learned the first time around?
1: I never got an MBA. Uh, nobody, you know, ever taught me finance. Um, uh, I learned the hard way, you know, and, and and I think that's the way to learn uh, as as an entrepreneur is, mm-hmm. is, is learning the hard way. So I actually got a, you know, I raised $2.6 million for Everest. Uh, I got a $2.6 million MBA uh, and uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I joke about that with the, you know some some real um, contrition because like those were you know our, my investors' hard-earned dollars and and it's not even just about the money that went into Everest. You think about the man years. You know some of my favorite math is uh, ten people work at a company for a year. How many years went into the company? Ten years, right? It's like ten. 10 you have a you have a, a meeting uh, with ten people in the meeting. It was an hour. How long did the meeting last? Ten hours, right? At least people aren't used to thinking those terms. And so Everest, Everest was a huge uh, failure. Um, and there was a lot of things about my past self uh, and my previous business thinking that I that I admire and that were valid. But I there were huge, huge blind spots and huge mistakes um, that uh, are the sort of mistakes that like once you make them and you experience the pain the way I felt it, you just don't make again. The good thing, though, is that it didn't—it uh, didn't break me. It almost did, but it didn't break me. I, I still had the energy to like try again. Uh, and actually, Invisible 1.0 didn't work either. Uh, and and then there was another moment where I like truly was was uh, you know about to to quit as an entrepreneur and become a normie. I literally like couldn't pay for rent in San Francisco. I went to my move to my grandparents' ranch in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the only way to entertain myself other than working was like going on Amazon and buying an archery kit and learning how to shoot a bow and arrow. <laughs> and I just got all my books from back home and I was like looking for inspiration. I found uh, *Agakure*, the book of the samurai, and in there there's a line: "Just become insane and desperate to die. Ten men cannot stand against such a man." And I was like. I thought I was being, uh, you know, aggressive enough as an entrepreneur. But like, really, I was actually being quite consensus. I was trying to play within the within the I was trying to play the game everyone else was playing. Uh, and that's when I realized I just needed to play a completely different game and like play it, you know, and, and just like put in a completely different type of energy into the business. And, uh, that was really like the, the, the true like do or die moment, I think spiritually for me, because like, uh, I was, I was actually like, uh, pretty convinced at that point that I didn't have what it takes to, to, to build one of these things. Um, because these ideas, you know, you have an idea for a company, it's like a scientific hypothesis. And it's an expensive thing to test. It takes years to see if you're right or not. And if you run away at the first sign that you're wrong, then you're not really testing it properly. So, you know, it takes a lot, like the same way a, a VC investor makes an investment, it takes a while for them to see whether the investment was a good investment or not. It's, it takes even longer really for an entrepreneur to to, to learn. These learn- learning cycles, you know, take a while. Um, and so, um, yeah, like you have to find a way through the wilderness.
0: All right, everybody, Francis Pedraza, such an incisive thinker, philosopher, historian, and entrepreneur. If you want to find out more about his company, you can go to invisible.co. That's invisible.co. And if you want to connect with Francis, you can find him on LinkedIn. That's Francis Pedraza. Francis Pedraza, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Patrick. This is a, I, I love you as a friend and I love the podcast. FOMO.